Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast for pharmacists by pharmacists, where we discuss current events, relevant topics and emerging issues. I'm your host, Carly McMoore, and together with the AJP, I'm bringing you the opinions and expertise of different pharmacists to discuss their views and insights on topics relevant to pharmacists. Please like and rate each episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. This is Faye Seam. I'm the National President of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia. And hi, Sam. Um, Faye, I was just going to ask you a little bit about the any updates you have on 60-day dispensing. I know you've been spending a lot of time in Canberra talking with the ministers. I think everyone's eagerly awaiting um, any updates or any new information. Uh, yes, uh, Carleen, indeed. I, I must say the last um, two to three months really has been a, a very uh, tumultuous time for the profession. Uh, and since we last uh, spoke, we, I think we spoke about a couple of months ago at least, or when uh, the 60-day dispensing policy was first announced, uh, there have been some obviously movement in the area. However, overall, it's still moving, I suppose, um, quite slowly in terms of outcomes, um, you know, slower than what we would like to see. But there's definitely what we're doing is to try and speak to as many politicians as possible, as many senators as possible, to not just raise our concerns um, about the policy, but also um, letting these policymakers um, be aware of the real impact of these sort of policies on the profession, but also on the patients that we service, but also at the same time put forward some suggestions and proposals in relation to how these issues can be mitigated. So there have been ongoing conversations, but I must say we are still um, calling on the government to make the commitment to invest in meaningful reinvestment to maintain the viability of the community pharmacy network so that community pharmacies can continue to provide the service that the communities need. So the current um, suggestions of reinvestment, such as ODT and, um, and rural pharmacies giving them incentives as well, um, they haven't really matched the money that has been lost from community pharmacy and there's still some major shortfalls. Yes, I think, you know, we, we ought to look at this um, very objectively and, and look at the facts. And I'm one that is very big on, you know, what does the stats tell us? What are the facts? So the last time when we spoke, I mentioned about um, some stats that are publicly available. So at that time, I highlighted that there was the report from the uh, uh the Office of Impact Analysis uh, from the government themselves, recognising that uh, this policy will um, take away, on average, on average, $158,000 per pharmacy per year from the bottom line. This is on average. And of course, some other pharmacies, depending on the size of the pharmacy, it can be either, you know, a, a little bit more or less. Um, and the, the report also specifically highlighted that at the time, at, at the point in time when the, the announcement was made, there was a lack of consultation at that time. Um, and also there was a recognition that there ought to be greater level of consultation, especially uh, when it comes to the impact on rural and remote uh, community pharmacies, where in a lot of these areas, community pharmacies are the only point of healthcare contact. So that, that's what we knew at that time in terms of publicly available information. So we know that on average, um, the Office of Impact Analysis already acknowledged that on average, there's $158,000 taken away per year uh, from the bottom line. And when we talk about meaningful reinvestment, 
it, it must be meaningful reinvestment in the form of um, addition to what we are currently already doing um, to compensate for the loss of revenue or income, I should say, from the 60-day dispensing policy if we're really serious about maintaining the viability of the community pharmacy network, because you can't expect any business to stay alive when you take away that amount of um, income, but not having um, the the you know equivalent you know if, if, if equivalent amount uh, replaced back to make to maintain the operations and the viability of of the community pharmacy network. So since the Office of Impact Analysis report, they have also um, your listeners would be familiar with the latest report, which is uh, undertaken by Henry Ergas who's um, the health economist. And in Henry Ergas's report, he has also specifically highlighted the impact of the policy on workforce and on staffing. Um, if nothing happens, if there was no re reinvestment, um, then up to 20,000 um, jobs will be lost in the community pharmacy sector, just basically highlighted the real impact. Um, and, and the recommendation from the Henry Ergas report was uh, to say that there needs to be further consultation on the implementation, as well as um, the, you know, the reinvestment and how this is all going to um, progress and move forward. So I think as a last, the last time when I spoke to, to, to you and, and your listeners, this first step was to actually allow policymakers to acknowledge um, the real impact and the quantum of that impact. Um, and I think from, um, you know, just from publicly available information, there is the evidence there that uh, policymakers are um, starting to acknowledge um, more widely about the impact. But of course, what needs to happen is there still needs to be um, a, a, a further discussion around what that quantum of that impact is. And that is something that um, the government and the department really needs to sit down with the profession, you know, with the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia, with the Pharmacy Guild of Australia, and any other stakeholders to sit down and work through what that quantum is, and then work through what that reinvestment would look, uh, could look like. Um, yes, you know, the last weekend, it was a very challenging weekend for those of us practicing in the community pharmacy area with the introduction of the new ODT program. And for those of your um, listeners who did listen in or dial into the PSA webinars to learn more about the ODT uh, program would, would know that, you know, there were various um, scenarios and, and matters that we discussed about. And what needs to be acknowledged is that um, a few facts here. Number one, you know, if you speak to any pharmacist, any professional organisations, um, we all agree that harm minimisation is a priority. We all support harm minimization and we all support patients and clients on ODT programs to have access, timely access and affordable access to ODT medicine. So ODT medicine, methadone or suboxone being on the PBS to improve you know, affordability um, by clients on ODT program, that in itself, if you look at that in isolation, that is welcome because if you, if you look at that, there are a lot of merits with that policy. However, the issue are twofold with, with regard to that. First is what we've, I've already previously mentioned, which is um, the, 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 the challenge that the rapid introduction of this program on the profession needs to be acknowledged. Because the implementation of the ODT program, which, which was implemented on the 1st of July, um, was implemented very rapidly. 
Um, and yes, you know, the profession did step up and, and what we have seen in the, in the last, you know, 10 or so days is the profession, as always, just like what we normally do during COVID as well, we stepped up and we did what we needed to do. But there were a lot of challenges, and this is speaking from first-hand experience and from all the farms that I've spoken to. There were various challenges when it comes to whether it's software issues or um, issues in relation to prescription validity, whether it's um, issues in relation to the logistical um, and the clinical and legalities um, matters. All of those are real challenges that add a lot of workload uh, and time on, on pharmacists. Um, yes, you know, there are um, remuneration associated or attached to this ODT program, but, but we must also recognize that the ODT, or, or I should say pharmacists supplying ODT medicines um, uh, is, is not something that is new, right? We've been doing that for decades, um, at least for the last 30, 40 years, we've been doing that. It is something that's very close to the heart of pharmacists. It's something that pharmacists are very passionate about. Um, but in some states and territories, the state government um, or the territory governments are actually funding um, the administration fee. And in, 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 in most of the cases, the administration uh, fees are paid by um, the clients themselves. And what we need to, first of all, um, if, you, if you just look at the remuneration um, from the federal government on this ODT program, the, question, the first question is whether it's comparable to what pharmacists are already getting at the moment. And the second big question is, if, if, if this was simply a shift um, of funding source from state government or consumers to now to federal government, um, then at the end of the day, it doesn't actually help the viability of the community pharmacy. And it certainly is not a form of compensation from the 60-day dispensing because it is not um, funding in addition to what pharmacists are already remunerated. So I think, you know, I, I must highlight and, and please let me emphasize that the profession strongly supports harm minimization. And we have so many pharmacists that are so passionate about supporting patients and clients on the ODT program. And we feel a great sense of obligation and responsibility. Um, it's almost like it's in our blood to make sure that we can give the best service and best care possible to, to people in need. Um, but when you tie that in with um, you know, 60-day dispensing as a form of reinvestment, that's where a lot of the conversations needs to be had because um, it, it, it really, if it's simply a shift of payment from territory, state territory governments or patients to now federal government, then ultimately, you know, if we're serious about maintaining the viability of the community pharmacy network, then that, that, that does little um, to maintain that. Um, but, you know, I, I do think I want to take this opportunity, if it's okay with you, Carleen, to say thank you to pharmacists, because I know the past um, couple of weeks in particular in relation to ODT and the rapid introduction and implementation of the ODT program, it has added a lot of stress and anxiety uh, for practicing community pharmacists needing to think on their feet, needing to catch up with, um, you know, the legislation and the changes and learning how to use new systems and softwares and most importantly, hadn't had have those very difficult conversations with their clients uh, and also the ODT prescribers 
I really do think that pharmacists once again have again proven that um, that we can really adapt. But the question now is, you know, we really cannot continue to do more for less. Um, and, and really that, that is something that we've made sure that policymakers are aware of our sentiments. But from a practice support perspective, PSA is 100% behind pharmacists when it comes to supporting pharmacists so that um, pharmacists can continue to practice safely and effectively. Have some of those challenges been ironed out with the ODT program? Yeah, from, from what I can hear, you know, this is really the second week, if you like, um, since the first uh, national rollout of the new ODT program. Um, and our, our team, you know, has been monitoring this very carefully. And our subject matter expert, internal PSA subject matter expert, uh, Jared McMore, has been really excellent when it comes to supporting um, uh, pharmacists, um, pharmacist members, um, in, to help them to to participate in this program safely and effectively and to try and you know work through some of those challenges uh, and also I must um, also um, give credits to uh, Chris Campbell as well as Peter Guthrie from the PSA team who worked tirelessly behind the scene to make sure that um, our concerns are very clearly um, you know raised with the relevant stakeholders and, and that those um, issues can be worked through uh, as quickly as possible. So yes, I think I think you know um, some of those challenges are, are, are currently in the process of being worked through, but it's it it still does not take away you know the 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 intensity of the challenge, if you like, and the pressure that our pharmacists are you know are you know are forced to face with um, in it currently. Has the first tranche of the medicines that are going to be included in the 60-day dispensing have been released as well, the 93 medications. So I guess I'd ask you a little bit about your thoughts about the release of the new medications and if people, because um, I know not many people got much information before they were released as well. So it's yeah. another, um, I guess it's a little bit of knowledge along the way. Yes, yes. So you're right, Colleen. You know, the um, again, your your listeners will be aware of the latest release um, of you know the list of medicines from the first tranche. But if I can take a step back just to just to recap on the on on the journey and how we've got to where we've got to as well. I mean, some of you might remember um, back in April when the federal budget was first announced. There was um, it, it was announced as there were 325 um, molecules or, or PBS medicines. Um, you know, in the entire sex-fitted dispensing um, policy, if you like. Uh, and at that time, the, the policy was framed as a way to reduce cost uh, or healthcare costs to, to Australians. Um, I, I, I do also want to take this opportunity to also try and draw parallel to the Medicare rebate freeze for general practice, which which took place, you know, in the last decade, if you like. Um, at that time, I mean, every pharmacist who have worked with doctors before and or in primary care will be aware of the impact of the Medicare rebate freeze. Um, and that rebate, the Medicare rebate freeze that affected GPs, occurred over nine years and it took away in total about 3.8 billion dollars and now if you look at this you know the 60-day dispensing policy that's affecting our profession we're talking about taking away around about three billion dollars in a matter of a couple of years right if we talk about the full implement of the full proposed implementation 
So I think if, if the current policy does go ahead in its current form without adequate meaningful reinvestment, then I think it's fair to say that, you know, we would have some challenges when it comes to whether it's workforce um, and the in the level of services that um, a pharmacy can provide and also ultimately the viability of the community pharmacy network. Uh, and ultimately, if the viability of the community pharmacy network is affected, then it does affect Australians' access to primary care um, because we know that community pharmacy play a critical role in primary health care access. So um, if you ask me about what my feelings are, that the feelings at the moment I really want to say is that we really need to now um, a while actually it was just last week I in my mem in my president's message to PSE members I raised you know my sentiment that we really need to now think forward and really act in a very pragmatic and practical way. The conversation now needs to be about meaningful reinvestment and finding a way forward. So what does that mean? Um, and we've we've started to have some conversations as well with um, relevant stakeholders around this. So again, every pharmacist that I've spoken to, um, with so far are telling me that, you know, if 60 days dispensing has to happen um, with the rationale to make medicines more affordable for Australians, making it more convenient, you know, if that were to happen, they can work with that, but they want to make sure that they can see meaningful reinvestment. And I think our profession is quite pragmatic in terms and, and adaptable when it comes to doing more so we can practice through our top of scope and do more professional services. I think we agree with that as a, in principle, right? But now, now the conversation is about, well, then what, what does that look like? If we talk about um, what what can that meaningful reinvestment look like? I think we need to take a step back and think about what are the, our area of niche and what we're good at. You know, what is our area of expertise? And it comes to mind two big things. One is our accessibility. And second is um, the fact that we're a medicine expert and our role and responsibility in ensuring um, that Australians can continue to ha have access to safe and effective medicines. So, so let's look at access first. So I talked about um, community pharmacies being very accessible. We all know the stats are out there. We also know about um, the sentiments of Australians about how much they rely on their community pharmacist. So we know Community pharmacies are accessible. We know that community pharmacies provide a really good um, opportunity to have almost like a health hub in communities for healthcare access. So how can we leverage the accessibility to ensure that people and patients can continue to have access to safe and effective care? So I think we need to work together um, holistically in our entire healthcare system. Now, our Minister for Health, Minister um, uh, Mark Butler, has already made the commitment that he wants to do a scope of practice review in the very near future. And the purpose of that is to um, work towards enabling all healthcare professionals to practice to their top of scope, because that is the way, the only way forward if we're serious about maintaining sustainability of our overall healthcare system. Because why should we be wasting money by asking a healthcare professionals trained at a particular level to only perform tasks at a lower level? That's not the best use of healthcare and resources. So, with that in our mind, I think if then we take a step back and go, right, we've got scope of practice review as our opportunity. We know that pharmacists are trained highly and we know that at the moment we are not being fully utilised to our full scope in our healthcare system. So what can we do? And if I can highlight again, 
the things we can do, some of those things we are already doing, we might just not be doing it without remuneration. And this is an opportunity for us to um, put a structure in place uh, to undertake these sort of services that I'm going to mention later in a very systematic um, and process-focused manner with good structure, with accountability, um, with objective measures, um, and be remunerated to perform this. So access, what can we do? Triage and referrals or you know, minor ailments management or chronic disease management programs. So again, think none of these are actually new, right? If we think about international data, you know, in the UK, there was already the um, minor, ex, minor ailment scheme um, where pharmacists um, in the UK are you know, um, empowered to be doing more for minor ailments um, and that they're remunerated for it. In Australia, you know, some of your listeners will be aware that in various states and territories, the states and territory governments have committed to um, empowering their local pharmacists to participate in some of the scope trials, whether it's UTI or in New South Wales at the moment, it also involves pharmacists supplying oral contraception uh, to women. Uh, and once again, all of this, um, whether it's triaging and referrals and actually um, getting um, pharmacists to triage cases um, before making timely referrals to GP, um, emergency department or other health, allied healthcare professionals, all of those things are there um, for us to, all those things are things that pharmacists are already doing, right? Um, but we're not paid to do them. In some of the scope trials, yes, there is a, a minimal service fee, but in general, we're not paid to do those services, but we are already doing it. We have the knowledge and skills to do it, and the community needs us to do that. So, so that is one area, one example where meaningful reinvestment can be made. Um, other examples, you know, some of the chronic health conditions. Can pharmacists do more there in relation to, um, you know, services, um, whether it's, um, you know, prescription modification, um, you know, making sure that the prescribed therapy is safe and effective, whether it's the right dosage and dosage forms, um, whether we can actually do services or pharmacy programs to make sure that the medicine can be safe, like medicine safety programs, um, follow-ups, um, medicines by injections, all of these, again, are examples of services or pharmacy programs that pharmacists have the knowledge and the skills to do. And it is well within the scope of practice of a pharmacist, but we're not remunerated to undertake those services at the moment. So, so that that is an area where we uh, we should be, you know, um, you know, we should we should be remunerated for and doing it well. Now, so I've talked about the excess, but there is also um, you know, medicine safety and safe and effective use of medicines. Your listeners might remember that it was back in 2019, it was that the government made the commitment to make medicine, quality use of medicines uh, and medicine safety as the 10th national health priority area. And in a medicine safety take care report commissioned by the PSA that was released back in 2019-2020, we highlighted that in Australia, we have a quarter of a million hospitalizations every year in Australia due to medication related problems. And that is costing our health system $1.4 billion. And in addition to that, we have up to 400,000 emergency department presentations that were medication related. And up to 50% of these can be preventable if you is preventable if you have a pharmacist involved where you have pharmacist intervention. So 
pharmacists should be empowered to do all of those things. Um, but at the moment, one of the challenges that we have is that, you know, say, for example, meds checks or, or medication reviews, we have caps placed on us. Um, th there really shouldn't be any caps. The caps should be removed. And, and I'm talking about caps on not just medication um, reviews, but also caps on those administration aids, because these services should be provided um, and should be driven by the demand and the need. If you cap a service, um, it, it may mean that in some areas, the pharmacists are not able to meet the demand of the local um, community. And that is why, you know, I, I think th those are all just just to give um, your listeners some examples of of areas where we really need to take a step back and think about, right, if we want meaningful reinvestment, where should this be and, and what are the objectives? Um, and in, in, in all of this, I think we must also remember that the reinvestment cannot forget about the vulnerable and specific patient groups. And that includes, you know, residents or residential aged care facilities um, and whether it's our clients who are on dose administration aids, those who are on, who are on multiple medications, um, you know, rural and remote patients, um, people who identify as First Nations peoples um, and clients on the NDIS packages, all of these are specific patient groups where we have to, you know, just bear in mind that we must we must make sure that the reinvestment um, will continue to look after them. And 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 in all of this, there should also be, you know, real reinvestment, meaningful reinvestment into quality and evaluation, because the, these these will then generate, you know, the evidence that our profession needs. You know, I'm talking about program evaluation to measure the effectiveness of these um, services and programs, um, so we can make sure that there is some form of longevity in these programs, and we can measure the impact. But also, you know, workforce development. There absolutely must be reinvestment into training, education, and upskilling of pharmacists as we continue to evolve our roles. So in your discussions um, in Canberra, these have been some of the um, topics that you've brought up about where the reinvestment could come back into pharmacy? I mean, we're, we're having ongoing conversation, but once again, this is something that affects um, the entire profession. And I must say, we really need to work collaboratively together. And I've previously mentioned that in this regard, that um, we the, farm, the PSA shares similar concerns to the Pharmacy Guild, and therefore we're working collaboratively on this. And, and it's so important that we are transparent in the way we have conversations and, and when yeah. we have these sort of discussions. So what I do want to say is I think, you know, not absolutely not downplaying the significant impact of these policies, but I do want to highlight that um, we really need to be very pragmatic um, in relation to finding a way forward. And um, your listeners who have been following the PSA on our social media would know that we've recently announced that um, uh, Minister Butler has confirmed his attendance at PSA 23. So I, I do you know, look forward to seeing um, more members of our profession at the event. Um, as as we move along, uh, move forward in this journey. So, as we move forward and more um, discussions are being had, I guess I'd ask what you would, what else you would hope to achieve um, through to the discussions. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately what I want, what I would like to see is first of all that you know I I must say I've always been very proud of. Australian community pharmacists providing high quality and accessible 
healthcare in, in primary care by Australians. So I'd really want to see that continue. And I really want to see that pharmacists would have um, career prospect, a positive career prospect and an and opportunity for career advancement and really have that satisfaction to be in our profession. And that those those things, those two things continue to, you know, be the foundation of all of our discussions. Um, and, you know, the, the other area as well that some of your listeners might be um, interested to 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 hear an, uh, a, a, you know, an update on is, is the on-site HK program. So the on-site HK program was meant to be implemented on the 1st of January of this year, but we all know that um, we've all put forward our submissions, we've had conversations and discussions in the past, but um, there have been some challenges, right, as, as we all know. So we continue, you know, in our conversations with um, stakeholders about the need to achieve you know, two things. Number one is about flexibility, right? We need a level of flexibility in the model of implementation and the administration of the program such that we can maximise the number of HK facilities and residents that would benefit from this program. And secondly, um, in addition to flexibility, is to really ensure that we have a program to maximise time on ground of a pharmacist to be on the ground performing the services that we do well, to meet the Royal Commission into Aged Care um, Quality and Safety Recommendation, which is to improve safe and effective use of medicines in um, amongst residents of residential aged care facilities. Um, and I do want to point out something that's very interesting. Um, the AIHW uh, this year, earlier this year released a report, um, which is the Residential Aged Care Quality Indicators from January to March this year. And in the in the um, in that report, it actually indicated that um, there is a positive trend in relation to safe and effective use of medicines um, in HK facilities. So there's a, there's an improvement, right? And I and I want to do really attribute this improvement to um, uh, some changes um, back in 2020. Um, if 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 members of the profession would remember that there was an increase in the caps. Um, uh, from 20 to 30, um, and the introduction of follow-ups of RMMRs um, in in HK facilities, and and those things mean what that what that tells us is that our profession has positively contributed to safe and effective use of medicines, um, you know, based on the quality indicators that was published. And, and what that is also telling us is that when you remove the caps, when you, re when you allow pharmacists to perform these roles, you will see a positive impact. So therefore, I think once again, going just back to evidence and data, we're trying to just showcase the impact, the positive impact of medication reviews by pharmacists, um, whether it's, you know, for um, home dwelling individuals or people who live in residential aged care facilities. So obviously we're, we're still having this conversation in, on an ongoing basis. Can I ask um, what advice you might have for pharmacists now, um, like as they, as we move forward and, and how they can prepare or yeah, for, prepare for the rest of the changes? Yeah, I, I do. Again, I, I do really feel that this is a very challenging time. And I know that um, I've spoken to a large number of pharmacists and PSA members. And I, I do acknowledge, you know, even I'm feeling it myself, you know, it is a very challenging time. So 
uh, please do look look after, continue to look after yourself and to look after each other. And I and I must say, you know, yes, we have challenges at the moment that we need to work through through real consultation and and discussions. Um, but overall, I, I, I remain optimistic. I still do. I remain optimistic in the role of pharmacist. The Australian healthcare system will continue to need pharmacists um, for, for very clear reasons. You know, first, we know that medicine use in Australia is on the rise. Um, and wherever medicines are used, we know that there is a risk for medication misadventure. And we know that pharmacists are medicine experts. And we know that the involvement and intervention by pharmacists will go a long way to reduce medication preventable harm. So that's number one. We know pharmacists were always going to be needed and pharmacists are going to be needed even more into the very near future. And secondly is we have an aging population in Australia. We all know that from AIHW, if you just look at the, the curve, we, we at the moment we almost have like a pear-shaped curve. And what we're going to see is in the next 10 to 20 years, we will have a significantly increased proportion of Australians that are aged 65 years and above. And we know, and, and already this was actually from um, a recent Deloitte report that estimated a fourfold increase in healthcare professional needs. Um, uh, as we approach 2040 to 2050. So what this is telling us is that when you have an aging population, an aging population is going to need, uh, is going to have increase in healthcare need and demand. And therefore, once again, uh, we will need um, a strong primary healthcare system and we need pharmacists to contribute to that. And the, the third um, rationale as well about why I remain optimistic, you know, in, in the long run is that, um, we know that we have an issue um, in relation to GP access. We have a GP access crisis in Australia that is recognised by even the medical groups. Um, and from the stats we know from the latest um, graduate outcome survey that was only released in January this year, which was a survey of all of the medical graduates um, who graduated um, from last year, only 13.8, so less than 14% of them uh, are even considering going into GP practices and GP specialization. And, and we know at the moment the average wait time to get into a GP has increased significantly. On average, it depends on the area, and some areas is, is longer, but on average, it has increased from two days to now about four and a half days, and worse and longer wait times in some of the rural and remote areas, with some areas reporting waiting up to six to eight weeks to see a GP. And if we know we already have an issue at the moment and that a large number of conditions, uh, like acute conditions, would require urgent care, and urgent care means you need care within the first two to three days. And we know that information, coupled with the fact that we know the workforce coming through, um, you know, the fact that only less than 14% of the medical graduates are thinking about going into GP um, specialization, then we're, we're talking about at least a six to seven year lag between, um, you know, before this situation will improve. I mean, and I'm, and I'm being obviously still optimistic, considering that that's going to immediately have an impact, right, on improving access to GPs. So, and our, and our GPs are some of the most highly trained workforce, right, in our healthcare system. And GPs should be empowered to practice to their top of scope to do high level clinical care. 
And that is why, you know, coming back to this, knowing about the capacity of our primary healthcare system, and also knowing that um, our, our health minister is very committed to strengthening primary care, then this presents an opportunity for pharmacists to play an even greater role in our primary healthcare system. So I think um, my advice would be, you know, if, if any pharmacists are ever feeling down and uncertain, you know, yes, I don't want to, I do not wish to downplay, you know, any um, the significance of any policy changes that affects us. But I do want to say, you know, try to be optimistic and think about, you know, the, the over, over sort of longer term um, trajectory of our profession and that um, the trajectory is still on the up. The, the role of pharmacists and the need for pharmacists is only going to continue to grow. Um, and, and also, you know, um, trust that your professional organisations are representing your needs and are raising concerns and are raising um, recommendations, pragmatic solutions or pragmatic recommendations to um, relevant people um, and, and, and are, most importantly, your professional organisations are uniting and collaborate, collaborating because I really, really genuinely believe in collaboration and unity. Um, because we are stronger together. So um, I just I just wanted members of the profession to know that um, this is a time when you know we are really seeing through collaboration and and I really want to thank all professional organizations for doing that. Is there anything else you'd like to share about the 60 day dispensings and the changes? Not at this stage, but I do highly encourage members of the profession to consider attending PSA 23, because at PSA 23, we have now had confirmation um, of attendance um, from Minister uh, Mark Butler, as well as um, Minister Emma McBride, who's a fellow pharmacist. And also um, on the second day, we also have confirmation of attendance by um, uh, our shadow Health Minister, so Senator and Rustin, um, who will also be addressing the delegates. So I do highly encourage members of the profession to come along uh, and also participate in, in some of the policy sessions that we have, um, because again, this is something that affects all of us and we, every single one of us have a role to play here. And, and this is our profession and this is, this is really a critical time for us all to work together and support each other. Thank you. Um, and I guess I would ask, because I just want to make sure that I've covered everything. So as you mentioned the PSA um, and the first change of medicines, I know it's hard, but I guess if, if pharmacists are thinking about the next thing that they should prepare for um, between now and September, what should be the next, like, what should they be doing to prepare for the next, uh, the next change? Well, I mean, th 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 things are still, I, I must say, things are still fluid at the moment. Um, and obviously, PSA will keep our members informed as soon as we have new information. But uh, stay in touch with your professional organisations and, and receive updates because we, we, we will continue to provide practice supports around how pharmacists can, can better prepare. So I'll, I'll probably, I can speak to that, you know, once we have some further announcements. Um, yeah, because at the moment the the, the ministers are um, it's it's due um, last week was the last week for um, the uh, seating week, and now um, I understand that they've gone into a, a, a winter break. So there will be 
um, yeah, as, as I said, you know, in a couple of in, in about a week's time, there will be more, um, I think, more movement. Uh, but please come to PSA 23 and we'll, we'll have those conversations. It's it's an ongoing um, matter. Um, yeah, but we'll keep members in, informed. It, I really I really do want to say that, you know, it's I know there are a lot of um, conversations, a lot of challenges and a lot of um, anxiety at the moment and uncertainty. But I sometimes, you know, I sit there and I just tell myself just to reflect and take a step back because we mustn't forget about our core role, our core role in terms of those two things, right, about our medicine safety and also access to, to care. And, and those are the two things I think that we must not forget, and I encourage all members of the profession to not forget. And those two things really would form the foundation of us finding a way, a way forward. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP website forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please follow us on Twitter at AJP Podcast and send us a message.